So uh, if you've got your sheet there, we'll do turn back to uh, Joshua chapter 8, the passage that you've got there. Many of you will have been with us uh, over the past months for this intermittent series that we've been following here in the book of Joshua. Uh, And in this time, we've seen how following the death of Moses, God raised up Joshua to lead God's covenant people, the Israelites. We've also seen that Joshua's role was to lead the Israelites into the promised land. But this wasn't uh, a newfangled idea of the new leader. It wasn't the bright idea of some new inspirational or charismatic leader. Rather, it was the fulfillment of a promise that had been made by God to Abraham some 400 years earlier. We saw that back in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord had promised Abraham that in due course, the land of Canaan would be given to his descendants as an inheritance. And the, is- the entry of the Israelites into Canaan then was merely the culmination of a plan established by God many years beforehand. It was the fulfillment of a divine design worked out in accordance with God's sovereign will over the intervening centuries. And then we read on, didn't we, in uh, the following chapters of the book, and we saw how God led his people into the land of Canaan. We saw that by a miracle they crossed the river Jordan. Even though the river was in full flood, the waters were held back and the people crossed on dry land. And we read on, didn't we, and we saw that by a miracle the Israelites conquered the city of Jericho. The gates may have been barred and the walls may have appeared impregnable, but they were no match to God who brought them tumbling down. And as we've read this account, as we've worked through these chapters, on a number of occasions our attention has been drawn to the Ark of the Covenant, which was carried centre stage. This, you remember, was a symbol of God's presence with his covenant people. It contained the tablets of stone on which were written the law, the revelation of who God is, and the declaration that the Israelites were to be his people and he would be their God. How could the Israelites be God's people? How could he be their God? Well, those of you who were with us previously may remember that the law written on the tablets did not just proclaim the holiness of God. The law written on the tablets comprehensively and unequivocally condemned the Israelites for their sin. Because the law reflects God's character, a character of complete love and goodness. But in reflecting God's character, the law also highlights how God's character and our characters are so different. 
Put simply, God is good, but we are not. Surely the Israelites, like us, would have had no hope. How could the sinful Israelites be the people of such a perfect and holy God? How could such a perfect and holy God be the God of a people who were the opposite, full of selfishness and sin? And if you were with us previously, you you may remember that we found the answer to that conundrum in Isaiah 45, 21. For there the God declares, there God declares about himself. There is no other God beside me. A just God and a saviour. We saw that the Lord isn't just a God who measures everyone against a standard of perfect righteousness. He's also a God who does not deal with his people according to their sin. Yes, the ark contained the tablets of the covenant of the law, the law which condemned the Israelites for their sin. But on top of the ark, you remember, was the mercy seat where blood was sprinkled by the high priest once a year. And the Israelites were told that by the shedding of blood, there was remission for sin, there was forgiveness. So the mercy seat on top of the ark declared to the Israelites that the Lord wasn't just a God of justice, he was also a God of mercy. Though they deserved punishment for breaking God's law, the ark of the covenant showed that God's people could be saved from that punishment as they confessed their sin and sought forgiveness from the Lord. But the Israelites were a people on a mission. They were returning to the land which had been promised to them by their God. But they weren't returning on their own. The Almighty, Sovereign and the Holy God was leading them. And not only that, the Almighty, Sovereign and Holy God had made a most remarkable declaration. He had declared that these were his special covenant people. And he was their God. Now, it would be easy at this stage of the narrative to be caught up by its drama, wouldn't it? Perhaps uh, our hearts get stirred as we think of that intimacy between Joshua and his Lord. We, we read of him meeting his Lord just before that battle at Jericho. Or we might be inspired by this account of God's chosen people experiencing God's presence in their midst as they carried the Ark of the Covenant. Or we might be awed as we think about the accounts of how God intervened miraculously, coming to the aid of his people as they crossed the Jordan and in vanquishing Jericho. But if you were with us last time, you'll remember, won't you, that that all came crashing to a halt when we looked at chapter 7. 
For if we had any misapprehensions about or uncertainty about God's view of sin, then this chapter made it painfully clear what God thinks about it. One man's rebellion, you remember, against God brought about horrific consequences, both for him and his family. But that wasn't all, was it? The effect of Achan's sin spread. A spiritual malaise descended on God's special people. Joshua forsook his intimacy with the Lord and he began to listen to the counsel of the foolish spies who suggested that the city of Ai could be taken with just a handful of men. The people no longer felt the assurance of God's presence with them in their midst. Rather, a cloud of depression and despair descended on the tribes of Israel. And then, God no longer intervened on their behalf. The first attack on Ai was an abject failure. Attacking troops were routed, and in that day, 36 families grieved for the loss of fallen soldiers. Husbands, brothers, sons who did not return. For Israel, it seemed as if God had forsaken them. Well, God hadn't forsaken them. Achan's sin was exposed, it was dealt with, and then the Lord spoke to Joshua again and sent the Israelites back to capture the city of Ai, as we read in our passage this morning. And as we read on in that chapter, we see that this time was different, for they achieved a sure victory there. Well, we'll spend a little time this morning considering what happened as we find it here in these 29 verses, the first 29 verses of chapter 8. And we'll look at this account under three headings, encouragement for the battle, success in the battle, and memorials of the battle. Encouragement for the battle, success in the battle, and then memorials of the battle. Encouragement for the battle then. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to I. See, I have given into your hand the king of I and his people, the city and his land. It's worth thinking for a moment about the mindset of Joshua and the Israelites at this stage. And the clue is in these first few words to Joshua. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Would God have said these words to Joshua if he was feeling absolutely chipper that morning? Would the Lord have said this to Joshua 
if he had shrugged off Achan's sin and the episode of it and was going on as if nothing had happened. Would the Lord have said this to Joshua if Joshua was full of confidence about the battle ahead, notwithstanding the defeat he'd just suffered? Surely the answer is no. If you want to gain a better understanding of how the Israelites felt, then just look back in chapter 7 a little. In verse 5 we read that after the defeat, the, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. And these are familiar words as we read the book of Joshua because they've been uttered by the Canaanites back in chapter 5 when God had miraculously stopped the waters of Jordan and the Israelites had crossed over on dry land. You see, the tables had been turned before the Israelites had known God's presence and his leading. And that had been a cause for assurance and joy. But now their experience was more like that of the Canaanites who had come to realize God was against them. And so uh, the Israelites had this sense that God had deserted them. And that was a reason, not for assurance and joy, but for fear and even despair. And then in in verse 6 of chapter 7, we read how Joshua became convinced that the Israelites would would be destroyed. He begins to rue the day that they even crossed the Jordan. He says, oh, that we had been content and stayed on the other side of the Jordan. He goes even further and he, he questions God's wisdom in bringing them there at all. He says, alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? Friends, I don't know what circumstances you may be facing in your life at the moment. But is it possible that you share some of the sentiments uttered here by Joshua? Do you question why God in his providence has brought you into current circumstances? Do you face a difficult relationship or an illness that leaves you afraid? Do you experience loneliness or depression which leads you to despair? Are you weighed down by stress or the burden of singleness? Or like Joshua, have you been shaken by the sin of another? Like Joshua, have you begun to doubt God's care and providence for you? Or do you feel an absence of God in your life? Do you question where God is in all that's happening in your life? No matter what our cheerful exterior, do we carry a heavy load in our hearts? Well, if you identify with Joshua and the Israelites this morning, then God says to you, as he said to Joshua, do not fear. And do not be dismayed. These opening verses gave you encouragement for the battle that lay ahead of him. 
And I'd like to highlight two things which would have encouraged Joshua, two things which should encourage us as we face our own battles and challenges in the Christian life. The first thing to note in these opening words is what we call the omniscience of God or the knowledge of God. The fact that the Lord says to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not despair, reminds us that God knew how Joshua felt. Isn't that what the psalmist refers to in Psalm 139 where he says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. See, God was intimately acquainted with Joshua's innermost fears, just as he is familiar with ours. Whatever face we may present to our family or friends or work colleagues, God sees clearly what is in our mind, for nothing is hidden from him. If we struggle with a secret sin, God is not ignorant of the battle that we face. If we struggle with dark thoughts, depression or despair, We're assured here that God knows precisely how we feel. The Puritan Thomas Watson says this about God's knowledge. God's knowledge is infallible. There is no mistake in his knowledge. Human knowledge is subject to error. A physician may mistake the cause of a disease, but God's knowledge is unerring. He can neither deceive nor be deceived. God's knowledge is instantaneous. God knows things past, present and to come. And at once, they are all before him in one entire prospect. How do you feel about that? Does that give you pause for thought? God knows everything about you. Past, present, future a perfect and absolute comprehension of who you are. In a very real sense, God knows you better than you know yourself. Perhaps that makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. Perhaps it makes you feel ashamed. But friends, if you're a Christian... Isn't this a great comfort this morning? God knows our circumstances and thoughts perfectly. Just as God gave a word to Joshua, which met his innermost need at the time, so God is able to deal with us based on his perfect knowledge of all our circumstances. Well, if the first thing to note was the perfect knowledge of God, the second thing to note is what we call the omnipotence of God or his almighty power. And we see this from the assurance that God gives to Joshua here. He says, see, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. 
He doesn't say that he will give the city or he may give the city. The declaration by the Lord is in the perfect tense because the matter is already decided. It is God's battle, not Joshua's. And so the outcome is already certain. I wonder if you've seen the most recent James Bond film. Opinions are a little divided, and if you wish to have a strong opinion, speak to Harrison later. The most controversial scene is towards the end of the movie. I won't give too many details if you still want to see it, but it is striking that as tragedy unfolds, all the characters know what is happening. The camera moves, and M and Q and all the other characters are watching on helplessly as the events unfold. You see, they know perfectly well what is happening. But they can't do anything to intervene. Joshua, on the other hand, is not in such a helpless situation. God has perfect knowledge. The position is fully understood. But not only that, God is able to do something about it. Joshua could approach the second battle of Ai with confidence because not only did the Lord understand the despondency and fear that the Israelites were feeling, God had already intervened so that their fears would be groundless. And isn't that what we sang about in our opening hymn this morning? The Lord is King. By definition, the Lord has a sovereign right to do whatsoever he pleases. This is what it means to be God, isn't it? Not only that, but God has the power to execute his will. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. And so he will bring to pass all his plans and purposes, and nothing and no one will be able to frustrate them. Friends, how do you feel about that? Doesn't that put a whole new perspective on the difficulties we may face? Again, Thomas Watson has something to say on this. Get an interest in God, and then this glorious power is engaged for you. He gives it under his hand. In other words, he he promises, he gives it under his hand that he will put forth the whole power of his Godhead for the good of his people. This almightiness of God's power is a wonderful support and comfort to the believer. See what he's saying? So how about you? Are you struggling with sin? God says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Your sin may be strong, but God's almighty power is stronger. Are you passing through a season when your faith seems fragile? 
Is reading the Bible and prayer a struggle? God says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. For God's almighty power will preserve you until that day. Are you passing through a dark period in life, battling with illness, stress, loneliness, grief? God says, do not fear, do not be dismayed. There is hope, because God's almighty power is able to sustain you. Well, this was the encouragement that Joshua received for the battle, an indication that the outcome of the battle was certain, that it would be a sure victory. But we need to turn now and think far more briefly about the success that he found in the battle. And so in verse 3 we read, Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. The following verses describe at some length how the battle is executed. The count is slightly confusing as verses 3 to 11 to 13 appear to interrupt the flow of the narrative. And uh, it makes more sense when you see those verses as a flashback which reviews some of the events that are summarized in verses 3 to 9. Notwithstanding this, the overall battle strategy, if you like, is clear. The main force feigns retreat, and that draws the defenders out of the city. The ambush group, the small group, then attack the city when the defenders' guard is down, when they've left the city exposed, and the city is taken. And at that point, the main force returns to the attack, and the opposing soldiers are overwhelmed. Well, there's a significant contrast here, isn't there, between the first and the second attempt to take the city. In the first attempt, which was recorded in the previous chapter, Joshua didn't consult the Lord, but relied rather on the advice and counsel of his foolish and complacent spies. The first attack relied totally on a a human assessment of the strengths and weaknesses of the the city of Ai. The first attempt placed its reliance on the skills and the abilities of the uh, Israelite troops. And the first attempt led to failure and defeat. But for the second attempt, however, we see that Joshua follows the instruction of the Lord. For in verse 3, we see God's instruction, lay an ambush against the city behind it. And in verse 8, we see Joshua instructing the people, you shall do according to the word of the Lord. The second campaign then was not was marked not only by seeking God's direction, but by following his commands in a spirit of obedience. For it is trust and obedience that will lead to success. 
rather than looking at the, the detail of the account, I'd just like to pick out two points which may be helpful to us as a congregation at this stage. Firstly, you see that this strategy of the two forces involved all the fighting men because right at the beginning in verse 3, Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. The ambush party relied upon the main force and the main force relied upon the the group lying in wait. And isn't this a good illustration of the need that we have for one another in the church. It's an illustration, isn't it, of what it means to be in the body of Christ. Paul teaches us precisely the same point in 1 Corinthians 12. For there Paul uses the illustration of a body for the church and says we're all members of one body. And he says that to be effective... The body needs all of its constituent parts to be working together. All the parts need to support one another for the body to be healthy and strong and achieve its objective. Shouldn't we keep this in mind as we welcome our new minister in a few weeks' time? It's no use just sitting back when he arrives passing the baton across and thinking that he will do everything. We need to be united together with him in the ministry of the church, all playing our own part in the battle. So even now, be praying for both Andy and Harrison and seize the opportunities that there are for each of us to play in our part in this community that is LCPC. Second thing to note from this broad description of the battle is that it was Joshua who directed it and that all the people obeyed him. You may recall that back in Exodus 15, when uh, the Israelites had escaped from Egypt, when they'd been rescued from Egypt, taken out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, the waters were held back, and Pharaoh's army was then destroyed. Moses and the children of Israel sang a song to the Lord. And in that song they said, or sang, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Now, Joshua, as we've said previously, is a type of Christ. Well, if you look at verse 18 in this morning's passage, we see Joshua with his outstretched arm. Joshua, the type of Christ, directing the battle. Doesn't this indicate to us that it was really a good battle? Indeed, uh, that assurance is given when the Lord says to Joshua in verse 18, stretch out the javelin that's in your hand towards I, for I will give it into your hand. If we are to know success in our own battles, either individually 
or as a church, then there is only one place we must look to for direction. A supportive family, special friends, favourite theologians, or prominent preachers. They all may help us in our Christian walk, but none can replace Christ to guide us. If we're looking for success, if we're looking for a sure victory, we must be looking to him. And then finally, as we come to the end of this passage, we see the memorials of the battle. Look at verse 28. So Joshua burned I and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. As the battle came to an end, we face another uncomfortable passage which deals with the destruction of a city and its inhabitants. We've considered this subject in previous weeks, so suffice to reiterate that the conquest of Canaan was not some wanton orgy of violence, neither was it genocide by a despotic power. Fundamentally, this wasn't a war between the Israelites and the Knights at all. Rather, it was a demonstration of God's holy hatred of sin. God had delayed the destruction of the Canaanites for 400 years because their iniquity was not yet complete. For 400 years, God's judgment had been restrained, held back, but the Canaanites simply used that time to ignore God and heap sin upon sin. Eventually, however, the day of reckoning came and the people of Canaan had to face the consequences of their rebellion against God. Last Sunday was Remembrance Sunday, wasn't it? Up and down the country, people gathered at war memorials to remember those who had fallen in the service of their country. Memorials are erected so that we remember, so that we forget. And here in verse 29, the narrator speaks of a great heap of stones, which he says stands there till this day. You see, a memorial was erected so that the Israelites did not forget. In fact, this passage is bookended by two memorials. Because in the last verse of chapter 7, we read of a great heap of stones which marked Achan's grave, while here there is a heap of stones which marks the grave of the king of Ai. What did these two men have in common? Well, remember what we said about the land of Canaan. It was to be the inheritance of God's people. 
It was to be in the inheritance of those people whose lives were centered around the Ark of the Covenant. It was to be the inheritance of those people who were trusting in the Lord, who was both a God of justice and a God of mercy. These were the people of whom God had said that he would be their God and they would be his people. But you see, neither Achan nor the king of Ai wanted to be part of that. Neither Achan nor the king wanted to have the Lord as their God. And so in a very real sense, God granted them the desire of their heart. The memorial reminds us that if we want nothing to do with God, then our wish may very well be fulfilled. But friends, even if we don't want anything to do with God, we will still be measured against the law of God. God's justice will still measure us against the standard of his perfect love and goodness. Friends, this memorial reminds us that if we are measured in this way, we will be found wanting. But there's another memorial here in this passage. A memorial that points to a very different outcome. Look at verse 27. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. You may remember that back at Jericho, everything had been devoted to the Lord, and the people took nothing, well, apart from Achan. And you might have expected that the spoil of Ai would have been devoted to God in the same way, but this time it was different. This time God very graciously took what was his, And he gave it back to the people. So you see, the people had a memorial in their own homes. Each had a tangible reminder that God had fulfilled his promise. The promise that he had made to Joshua. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. So in conclusion, there are two things. Two things which I think it might be helpful just to note as we go away from this chapter. Firstly, there's a huge irony here, isn't there? You remember what transpired in chapter 7? Achan coveted what belonged to another. He saw, he desired, and he took. He took what was God's and he paid a terrible price. He lost everything. Friends, if only he'd waited. His fellow Israelites didn't take matters into their own hands, did they? But they relied upon the Lord. And then God provided for them. And the lesson here is clear, isn't it? Whatever the battle that you may be facing, God's word tells us not to take matters into our own hands. Rather, we must rely upon the Lord. And Jesus says as much 
in Matthew 6:33, doesn't he? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. But the second point to think about as we leave this passage is that while the Israelites trusted in a God of justice and a God of mercy, their understanding of how this could be was only understood through shadows. The writer of the Hebrews makes this point when he says that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. And this is apparent when we think about the mercy seat that we spoke about earlier. Each year when the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of sin, the Israelites had a shadow of the sacrifice that would be made by the Lord Jesus on Calvary. The yearly sacrifice performed by a man could never hope to deal with man's sin. The shadow pointed forward to a true sacrifice, however, a sacrifice for sin that would be made by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the story of the conquest of Ai illustrates a similar thing. The efforts of man to take the city of Ai was doomed to fail. Only when God intervened would there be a sure victory. And so it is with our salvation. The shadows performed by men achieved nothing. It was only through the death of the Lord Jesus that victory over sin and death was won. This was the reason the Lord is a God of justice and a God of mercy. This is the reason that the Apostle Paul says, Thanks be to God who gave us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord and God, we thank you that as we come to you this morning, we are reminded that you are a very gracious God, that you do not deal with your people according to their sins or according to their weaknesses. Lord, we thank you that as we have considered this morning, you're a God who knows perfectly. You know the burdens and concerns that each of us bear. Lord, you know us intimately. Nothing is hidden from you. But Lord, we thank you too that as we have considered this morning, you are a God who is all-powerful. You are the omnipotent Lord. And we bless you, Lord God, that that power and authority is applied to the good of your church and your people. We would have every reason, Lord, to tremble and to be afraid, to despair, if we did not have the assurance that the Lord was on our side. We thank you, Lord, for the example of the sure victory 
that was delivered to your people all those years ago. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn through their experience to look to our Joshua, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will guide and direct us through this life until he presents us before you on that day. We bless you, O Lord, this morning for the gospel that we who have no hope have every reason for hope if we are trusting on the Lord Jesus. We give you thanks, Lord God, that you have sealed that gospel with the blood of your Son. We give you thanks, Lord God, that the uh, assurance of our salvation rests on the all-sufficient provision made through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, too, that you are a faithful God, that you have made covenant with your people, and that, Lord, we uh, know from our own experience how you stand faithfully by your people in spite of their sins, in spite of their failings, in spite of the setbacks. Lord, you pick us up again and you say, do not despair, do not be afraid. Of difficulty, whatever they are, Lord, we pray that you would lift up hands that hang heavy, that you would give joy to hearts which are sorrowful, in and through the wonderful name of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.